He is risen. Now, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone already was taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. That's such an interesting little statement there. The guy who writes the gospel said, by the way, I beat Peter to the tomb. I got there quicker than he did. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. I'd like for you just to to bow with me for a moment. And I, I want you to envision that first Easter Sunday where the disciples are beginning to come to the tomb and they're milling about that area in front of the tomb and they're filled with this sense of astonishment, amazement. They don't quite comprehend. Maybe a glimmer of hope is beginning to be born in their minds, but they're in a a state of astonished amazement. And I want you to capture that feeling for a moment as we pray. And I want you to capture that feeling in such a way that you're able to to think about what that would have been like for you to have been there in front of that that empty tomb, bewildered, incredulous, wondering what on earth had happened. Father, this morning as we celebrate this Resurrection Sunday, we want to capture something of the astonishment that they encountered in front of that tomb. And Father, we, we can take for granted the fact that we know so much about the resurrection, and yet, Lord, we want to enter into the mystery of that this morning as we contemplate where we're headed and why we're headed there. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to welcome you to Grace. I want to ask the ushers to come forward and take our offering. If you're a guest or visitor, I want to encourage you to take the card in the seat pocket in front of you and fill that out and let us know that you've been here. We would love to know how we can serve you. If there's anything we can pray for you about, you can use that card to express your prayer request as well. We pray as a staff every week, um, and so would, would really appreciate you doing that. I got two announcements this morning. One is that next Sunday evening, we have an all-church event here at Grace. It's our annual chili night and trivia, and we would love to have you come and invite a friend, Um, and there's information about that in your update that you got when you came in. Uh, This is an annual event that we love doing here at Grace, and we would love to have you come. Next Sunday, we're going to have a baptism. It will not be as cold next Sunday as it is this Sunday. 
but we will do a baptism. And if you have not been baptized and would like to be baptized, please call uh, the Grace Community Church offices and let us know that you would like to be baptized and we will, uh, we would, it would be our honor to be able to include you in that baptism uh, next Sunday. Well, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31. And we're going to look this morning at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, this is a, an amazing story. Every time I read it, I get, I get excited about this story. And so uh, we're going to look at that this morning. I don't know if you've heard the news, but six weeks ago, a headline grabbed my attention. And here was the headline. Human beings are on the brink, on the brink of achieving immortality by the year 2015, or 2050, not 2015, 2050. And here's the, here's the futurologist who said this. The uh, subtitle was a little long, but let me read it to you. Immortality has been seen as mythology and science fiction, but now human beings are close to defying death due to several major scientific breakthroughs. These breakthroughs will give humans choices on how to live forever by the year 2050. The author of the study is Dr. Ian Pearson. He's a futurologist. He writes extensively in this sort of area. And uh, he says, it's so close. It could be a very real possibility for you in your lifetime. Now, the, the thing is, there's good news and there's bad news about this. And the bad news is that if you were born before 1970, you're not going to make it. And the reason why is because, uh, because all these inventions aren't, are not going to be available for you. You'll be too old and you might die before, they, before it happens. Sadly, you'll be the last human generation to die. That's what he says. The good news is if you're born after 1970, you might just be able to get in on this deal. Now, here's the fine print. The fine print is that first-generation immortality is only going to be available for the rich and the famous because it's going to be really, really expensive. So maybe, maybe by the year 2060, it'll be available for people who are sort of middle class. And then in the 2090s, it'll be available for most people. Now, here's how it could happen. Number one, there will be renewable body parts. A body part wears out or gets hurt and you'll 3D print a body part like the one you have, snap it in and you're good to go. That's, and he's very serious about this. The second product is an Android body. He says Android bodies are coming, you can upload your entire brain into a spot in the cloud. If you want to go skiing in one body in Switzerland on Thursday, great, you can, you've got it. If you need to be at a business meeting in Sydney on Friday, take your brain, your, your soul that you've uploaded, download it into another body in Sydney, and you're, you're there right away. Does that sound exciting to you? The third choice is living in a virtual world. If your mind is fully online, you might not even need a real world. You can just construct your own virtual world and have an economy there. All this will come at a price, but Dr. Pearson believes the cost of immortality might well be underwritten by the national health services of enlightened countries everywhere. 
However, he says, you know, it's not going to be for everybody. Because some people will not deserve to have their souls uploaded into the cloud because they're not good people. So somebody's going to have to decide who gets eternal life and who doesn't. So I, I'm asking you, wh what do you think about that? D d does it make you say, yes, that's the kind of immortality that I want? A lot of people look at Dr. Pearson's version and say, that does not sound good at all. That, that sounds like hell rather than heaven. I, I want something fundamentally different. What most of us yearn for is physical, physical immortality along with personal spiritual transformation. And that's the point of Jesus' amazing story about the rich man and Lazarus. Here's the beginning of the story. There was a rich man who clo was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate, there was laid a poor man named Lazarus. He was covered with sores. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Well, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died, and he was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And that's the beginning of the story. Let me explain how impactful this story is. This parable is a, a very gritty tale of two people who encounter two destinies and, uh, <clears throat> and make two requests. Two people, two destinies, and two requests. Let's consider the two people. We start with the rich man. I want you to imagine a man immaculately dressed in the finest clothing possible. He's a guy who today could be on the cover of GQ or Cigar Aficionado. He is a good-looking guy wearing an amazing outfit. For starters, uh, this man is dressed in purple, purple dye. Now, purple in the ancient world, you got two sorts of purple dye. You got purple made from beetroot. That was the cheap purple dye. And then you got the deep purple dye, and that was made uh, of the shells of a snail, of a mollusk, named the murex. And if you wanted to have a purple robe, you had to have thousands and thousands of, of ink sacs from the murex snail in order to make the deep purple robe. This man had the deep purple robe. This is like buying a $70,000 suit from Stuart Hughes or William Westmancott. They make those, $70,000 suits. This is like what this man is wearing. Jesus adds another touch. Now we go from his, inner wear, his outerwear to his underwear. Jesus says he wears fine linen. Anybody who had heard this story would have immediately understood. He's talking about his underwear. And the finest linen in the ancient world came Egypt. And it was so wonderfully woven that you hardly even knew it was on. Most people wore animal skin underwear. Not very comfortable. He's wearing the fine linen underwear. This guy's whole life is put together from his outerwear to his underwear and everything in between. And notice he displays 
his obsession with quality by the way he lives. He feasts sumptuously every day. Kind of thinking about the historical background, you realize he had had head head chefs and sous chefs. He had waiters. He had people. Every day was center-cut meat, vegetables with sumptuous sauces on top of them. It was a feast every single day. That means, though, that the guy had put on a bit of weight. Nobody in the ancient world was overweight. Everybody was rail thin because you couldn't get enough to eat. This guy manifests his wealth in the weight that he, he wears. What is he doing with all this partying? Well, <clears throat> where, is he, where is he doing it? He's, he's got a house. I'm not sure that picture on the screens depicts the exact house that he had, but here's a model of an ancient house in the upper city of Jerusalem. It has a gate. Now, most houses did not have gates. This man had a gate at his house. This guy is incredibly wealthy. You know how we talk about our needs being for food and shelter and clothing? What Jesus has just done is he's giving us a picture of the wealthiest forms of food, shelter, and clothing. His needs are met in the best possible way. Now we shift to the poor man. Everything is totally different for this guy. Um, When Jesus tells the story, his hearers must have understood the irony of the story. To say the word poor in Greek, you have to spit. You have to spit. Because the Greek word is ptokoi. Ptokoi. Here's a man who is spitting poor. He's in dire straits. He's in dire distress. He's spitting poor. And yet, he has a name. He has a name. Hardly any of Jesus' parables feature people with names. And Lazarus' name means God helps. And you think, wait, are are you kidding me? Here's a guy who's so poor. How in the world is God helping him? Well, we'll find out. We'll find out in a moment. This man's food, shelter, and clothing are entirely different than, than the rich man's. Lazarus's place in life, his shelter, so to speak, is the trash heap. When you read this parable casually, it seems like this guy is, is underneath the rich man's table, you know, feeding on the crumbs. Now, this guy is at the gate of his house. Now, in the ancient world, people, rich people didn't have napkins. They wouldn't use napkins because cloth was too expensive. So what they would do instead is they would have a lot of bread at the table, and you would wipe your mouth with the bread and throw it on the floor. You'd wipe your hands with the bread and throw it on the floor. Now, in the case of the parable, the servants were picking up the bread that was on the floor. They were taking it to the gate, and they were dumping it out at the gate, and there was Lazarus hoping to pick up a little bit of the bread, maybe tasting a little bit of the sauce from the vegetables before he consumes the bread. His shelter is the gate where he eats the bread. If Lazarus' shelter was the the trash heap and his food was the filthy bread, what about about his clothing? Well, uh, his clothing is his diseased skin because all over his body were boils and skin abscesses. Apparently, his body was nearly naked because the dogs would come up and they they would lick the boils on his skin. 
when we think about the dogs that did this, we don't, we don't think about that kind of dog. That's a, that's a fun dog to have. He wouldn't hurt you at all. The dogs we're talking about are the wild dogs. Here are pictures of some African wild dogs. These are, these are mean dogs. And these are the dogs that are licking this man's skin, licking the boils on his skin, licking the oozing abscesses on his skin. What a contrast. Incredibly wealthy versus incredible poverty. That's the contrast Jesus is trying to make. So what's going to happen to these two men? Well, we have a hint, don't we? Because the hint is in the name. Because the poor man is the man who has a name. That should give us pause to consider what destiny are they headed toward? Well, sure enough, in verses 22 and 23, Jesus describes the destinies of these two men. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. What a massive reversal of fortune. Think about this. When the rich man died, we would assume he had a lavish funeral. Hundreds of people packed the pews of the local synagogue. Family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, they spoke glowingly about his life, about his generosity. Um, and then they put him into a very finely carved limestone cave tomb made for a rich man. And then, and then the rich man's eyes open in death. And instantly he realizes, my wealth it's all gone. It's all gone. Vanished like dust in the wind. And I am in this dreaded place called Hades. Well, Hades um, is the region of the dead. It's for people who have not yet been judged. It is, as Jesus says, a place of torment. It's a place where people are kind of in detention until final judgment. And it's a bad place. And the rich man stares way off into heaven and sees Lazarus in the good place. He realizes, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. What have I done? What have I given my life to? He realizes that he's now separated from all that is good and beautiful and loving and kind and gracious and merciful. He's separated from all of that. That's really the essence of what hell is. The essence of hell is that it is a place of separation. Souls that are separated from God don't have physical bodies just yet. So it's not the, plays, the, the, the pain of burns and bruises and cuts. It's the pain of regret, remorse, and shame. It's the shame of a life wasted and a future squandered. And he realizes, I'm in that place. And it's the wrong place to be. That's the rich man. The poor man, however, experiences things that are vastly different. Uh, Lazarus, when he died, would have been dragged out of the city. He would have been dragged to a place called the Valley of Hinnom. Here's the picture of the Valley of Hinnom in 2018. Uh, back for most of Israel's history, this was the garbage dump south of Jerusalem. 
And people for centuries would take their garbage and they would dump it in the Valley of Hinnom, also called Gehenna, and smoke drifted upward all the time because the trash was constantly being burned and it was a place of sliminess and sludge and scavenger animals. It was a grotesque place and his body is just dumped in that place. No tomb, no nothing. Then Lazarus' eyes open. What does he see? He sees two friendly faces that materialize before him. They're the faces of angels. And the angels say, Lazarus, Lazarus. And they say it in a friendly way, not in a, a spitting, ptokoi way. It's a friendly way, Lazarus. And Lazarus is escorted uh, to a place called Abraham's side. The older versions of the Bible said it was Abraham's bosom. It's an amazingly vivid term. And what, really, what it describes is it describes a dinner. So here's a picture of an ancient table. And the host is where that one arrow is. And the guest of honor is to the right of the host. And if the guest of honor wanted to speak to the host, what would he do? He would, he would turn aside. He would lay literally toward the chest or the bosom of the host. Abraham's bosom. Abraham is the person who is the host of wherever this place is in heaven. He's the host, and Lazarus is by his side. He's the guest of honor. He's at the place of high honor at Abraham's side. Well, what exactly does all this mean figuratively? Well, Abraham's the father of Israel. Abraham is the father of faith. We know that Abraham is a friend of God. That means he is a person of faith. And now he's dining with the great men and women of the Old Testament in the presence of God. So the picture Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom is a picture, a parabolic, metaphoric picture of heaven. What do we see about heaven from that, from that idea? Heaven is a place of honor. There's a table set for you. There's a place for you. You are expected in heaven. People are waiting for you in heaven. It's a place of honor. Heaven is a, is a place of loving and close, intimate relationships. The idea of Abraham's bosom is the idea of Lazarus turning over toward Abraham and Abraham touching him on the shoulder and saying, Lazarus, I love you. I'm glad you're here. It's a place of close relationships. Heaven is a place where redeemed people luxuriate in the presence of God. Look, a, a table set in heaven is going to be a place of, of luxurious food and provision. Heaven is a place of beauty. That table setting has your name. How do you feel when you go to a, a wedding or a banquet and your name is on the table? It's, it's a, and, and, it's, and it's in calligraphy. Wow, this is, this is well done. This is a beautiful place. That's, that's heaven. Now we turn to the third section of the parable, and now we come to two requests. These two requests are directed toward Father Abraham, and amazingly, they occupy over half the parable. Two requests. Verse 24, the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in, I'm in anguish in this flame. The rich man doesn't know where he is yet, does he? 
because he still thinks he can boss Lazarus around. I got power over Lazarus, that guy who was at my gate. Father Abraham, send him down quick and and have him help me. Jesus is trying to make this really cleverly ironic because back on earth, Lazarus craved the crumbs that fell off the rich man's table. Now in Hades, the rich man craves water drops from Lazarus's finger. Wow. Reversal of fortune. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, well, he received some bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between you and us, uh, us and you, there's a, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. I hope you hear the love in Father Abraham's voice. Do you hear the love? Child, child. Child conveys tender, kind love. The rich man is still loved by God, but here's the problem. The rich man made choices during his life And those choices separated him from God. And the rich man is now suffering the consequences of choices made. And we get a glimpse of something about the afterlife that very few people pause to think about. And it's this. Death makes permanent the choices that we make in life. Death makes permanent the choices that we make in life. If you choose separation from God in this life, death makes that choice permanent permanent. If you choose love for God in this life, that choice is made permanent at your death. We see the permanence of this in the phrase, a great fixed chasm. A great fixed chasm. The decisions that we make in this life are preparation for the next. This life that we're living right now is not the whole show. It's a place for choosing. It's a place in preparation for the next life. Well, the rich man hears the pronouncement of Father Abraham, and now for the first time, he thinks of somebody other than himself. He said, then I I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Astonishingly, Lazarus, who is the poor guy at his gate, Now he wants Lazarus to be his ambassador, his emissary to the rest of his family members. Again, complete reversal of fortune. Notice something interesting about hell, about people who are in Hades, people who are in hell. You'd rather be lonely in hell than have people you love join you there. That's such an important thing to realize. You'd rather be lonely in hell than have people that you love join you there. That's how bad the rich man thinks it is to be there. But Abraham says, I'm not sending Lazarus back down. They got Moses and the prophets. Let your brothers listen to Moses and the prophets. And uh, the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if somebody rises from the dead. Apparently, his brothers were not in the habit of reading the Old Testament. They were not in the habit of reading 
God's words. And the father Abraham is saying, look, if they're not reading God's word, they're not going to understand, even if somebody rises from the dead, because they're not responsive to the word of God. So the story stops here. And it stops so skillfully that we're, we're forced to ponder the, the outcome. Um, the way this is written, we envision the rich man turning away from his vision of Lazarus and Father Abraham and stumbling into an eternity of regret, remorse, and shame. That's how the story is constructed. Sobering. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis expressed things this way. I believe that the lost are in one sense successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. I do not mean that they may not wish to come out of hell, but they will not enter even the first stages of self-abandonment through which the soul can reach any good. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom that they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. Pretty astute comment about the reality of hell. People who go there choose to go there because they choose to be in control and independent to the very end. Now, I want to step back from the story for a second and, and ask the question, what, what's the key idea? What, like, what exactly is Jesus trying to portray in this story? Well, Jesus is trying to get us to think about destiny. And I, I want to state this as simply as I possibly can. The choices that we make in this life determine our destiny in the next. Remember a little while ago, I, talk about, I talked about choices being made permanent. And I'm gonna, I want to use a term that's been coined by a number of different people, and it's the term permanentized. The idea is that if I make a choice to follow Jesus, that choice is permanentized, made permanent at death, so that I enjoy the fruits of that choice for all eternity. If I say, I not quite yet, uh, I don't really want to come to you yet, God. God, I want to be in control of my life. I don't really want to turn my life over to you. I want to maintain control. I want to do the things that I want to do. That choice, then, is made permanent in death. At some point, there has to be an accounting for free will, for free choice. And that time of accounting, that time when the opportunity is over, is at the opportunity of our death. A lot of times we think... I've, in fact, I've had friends tell, tell me this. Rod, I do want to come to Christ, just not yet. Just not yet. When I have the opportunity, I will. When I've had all my fun, then I will. When I'm, when I'm old, I, I've had a friend in high school tell me this. When I'm old, older, like when I'm in my 50s, I don't have fun anymore, then I'll do it. Well, can you guarantee that you will make that choice later on? No, you can't. You can't. There has to be a finite time when the time for choosing is over, and that is, that is the time of our death. Lazarus, in his pain, chose to be a friend of God. That's what his name means. The rich man, in his prosperity, chose to remain independent from God. 
and their choices were permanentized at death. So let's look at the two destinies for a moment. The, the rich man's destiny was eternal separation from God. So what's that like? Well, Jesus taught extensively about hell. I don't know if you saw the news, but uh, the Pope seemed to have denied the existence of hell in a statement that he made to a journalist over the weekend. The Vatican has done somersaults to try to try to deal with the fallout on this. Look, Jesus taught extensively about the reality of hell. So we, we, we're going to go to the words of Jesus. We're going we're gonna to openly look at what he says about, about hell. He called hell by a variety of different names. Gehenna, Hades, outer darkness, unquenchable fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why did Jesus use mixed metaphors? He used those metaphors to describe an experience that is beyond what we can fully comprehend in this life. We can understand a little bit about unquenchable fire, a little bit about weeping and gnashing of teeth. You combine all of those together, you understand there's an experience of pain, shame, regret, and remorse. The core of the pain has to do with, with, with this. We're separated from all that is good in this life. You realize that everything you enjoy is the product of you living in a good world that God created, right? If you go outside and you look at a beautiful sunset, what you're looking at is something that the God of the universe created. If you go to the ocean and you hear the roar of the waves and you revel in the beauty of the ocean, well, you're looking at something that God created and you have a body that is capable of of enjoying those things. With our eyes, we see beauty. With our ears, we listen to lovely music. With our sense of touch, we enjoy the many sensations of life. With our mouths, we can enjoy complex tastes. All that comes because we live in a good world that a good God has blessed with beauty and light and color and meaning. But what happens if you are separated from all that? What would happen if you were suddenly rendered a disembodied soul? You knew that loveliness existed because you'd seen it before, but you can't see loveliness, you can't savor taste, you can't enjoy touch, you can't enjoy smell or sound. What if you were shut up in your own negative thoughts forever with no hope of connection with anyone or anything that was good, what would that be like? It'd be horrible. It would be like solitary confinement. Psychologists describe what happens to the human psyche in solitary confinement. This is Brandon Kiem, uh, Kiem from Science Magazine. The human brain is ill-adapted to such conditions. He's talking about solitary confinement. Solitary confinement isn't merely uncomfortable, but such an anathema to human needs that it often drives prisoners mad. In isolation, people become anxious and angry, prone to hallucinations and wild mood swings, and unable to control their impulses. The figures of speech describing hell are figures of speech that describe separation, isolation from all that is good and beautiful and lovely and gracious and wise and right. And in that place of separation, there's regret.
What about the destiny of Lazarus? Be easy to simplify and say, well, Lazarus went to heaven. But we can't do that too quickly because that's not precisely accurate. Let me be ultra precise for you. When the Bible talks about heaven, it, it uses it in three ways. Number one, heaven is the, is the beautiful sky above us. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's one way the Bible uses heaven. Other times, the Bible uses heaven to refer to the invisible spiritual world around us. You know, where Paul says we are in the heavenly places in Christ. There's an invisible spiritual world around us. There are angels. God's presence is invisibly there around us, just like there are radio waves around you right now. You can't hear them, but they're there. <clears throat> heaven is also described as someplace way out there where God dwells. That's how it's used in the New Testament. However, when you're raised from the dead at the end of time, um, those descriptions of heaven don't fit, right? Because where you go at the end of time is a place called the new heavens and the new earth. Now, what is the new heavens and the new earth? Well, the new heavens and the new earth is the refashioned, repurposed, restored, recreated universe that we live in. Did you know that? That's very clear from the Bible. There's no doubt about that. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the new heavens and the new earth is this present universe recreated, refashioned, repurposed, and refit for God's purposes. And you will go there in a resurrection body. A lot of people think about heaven in a different way. A lot of people think that heaven is clouds and harps and swinging in a hammock, drinking mixed tropical drinks while you wait for the five o'clock meal. It's not heaven. Heaven is this present universe repurposed, refashioned, recreated, refitted, and you go there with a resurrection body, and you have purpose and meaning in that place. So forget the vague notion of harps and interchangeable body parts that I get to put on in this present universe. You got something far better than that to look forward to. Now, Lazarus is not there yet. Lazarus is in an intermediate state. And the intermediate state is the state that happens before we get our resurrection body. When we die, we go to this intermediate state where we're with Jesus, we're with people who have gone on before us, we're in a place of beauty, we're in a place of comfort, we're in a place of love, but we're not, we're not there with our resurrection body yet because we get that all together at the same time, but we're in that, that place, that intermediate place. That's where Lazarus is, in that intermediate state before he gets his resurrection body. He's headed to the new heaven and the new earth. I, I know this is a parable, but go with me on this. He's headed to the new test, the heaven and the new earth. Not there yet. Not, that, not there yet. The Bible is very clear about this. But a lot of people, it's so vague that they think, you know, I'll take the interchangeable body part and the soul that gets uploaded into the cloud because I don't know any better. And the better is resurrection body in the new heavens and the new earth, 
living on purpose for Jesus forever. So that raises a question. If the choices that we make in this life affect our destiny in the next, what's the essence of the choice? What's the essence of the choice? And the essence of the choice really comes down to one word, and it's Jesus. The essence of the choice is you saying, I want Jesus. I want him. I want Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the one who died on the cross for my sins, the one who rose from the dead, the one who extends eternal life as a gift to all who believe. I want that guy. I want the one who rose from the dead. I want him. I want to love him. I want to walk with him. I want him. That's the one that I want. And in the parable, Jesus describes Lazarus as the friend of God, the one that wanted God and the one who pursued him. Here's how John put it in the Gospel of John. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. Now, let's apply this. What about encouragement for Resurrection Sunday? First application is this. Ask the question, who do you most resemble in the story? Oh, this is a really good question to ask. Who do you most resemble in the story? Now, this is very hard for us because, you know, we, we live in the, in, the, in the modern, you could say postmodern era, where all of us have the, even the poorest in this room, have the net worth, so to speak, of the rich man in the story. We are fabulously wealthy, even compared to the rich man. So we have to think about about the choice this. Do I, in my affluence, put God at arm's length and say, I don't, I don't, I kind of want you, but not really? Um, do we say, not yet, or do we say, nope, I want I want to stay in control? Is, is that is that our choice? Or is our choice friendship with Jesus. Or Jesus, I want to be your friend. I want to walk with you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to be the person that I fellowship with daily. Jesus employs the name God helps Lazarus as a clue for how you make the choice. Um, so what kind of person are you? More like the rich man? Independent from God? or more like Lazarus, radically dependent upon him. Here's the second application. Focus on the present. I say this a lot at Grace, but here's the thing. Our eternal life begins now. Begins now. Begins right now. And my question is, are you enjoying that eternal life that you presently possess? It's very easy for a lot of people to say, well, eternal life is like my insurance against hell. I made the decision. I prayed the prayer. I'm good. I can can live however I want. It doesn't matter because I'm going to heaven. That is a terrible misunderstanding of the Christian faith. You come to Christ, your eternal life begins now, and God's vision for your life is that you would live in that eternal life moment by moment bringing God into everything that you do. You know, the cool thing about what Paul says, 
is that, you know, all of life is spiritual. Whether I go to see a movie, where I go to a play, whether I enjoy good food, all of life is spiritual. I'm invited to bring the presence of God into everything that I do. All of life is spiritual. Here's how uh, A.W. Tozer put it. He says, a spiritual kingdom lies all about us, enclosing us, embracing us all together within reach of our inner selves, waiting for us to recognize it. God himself is here, waiting our response to his presence. This eternal world will come alive to us the moment we begin to reckon on its reality. That's an invitation to live in the supernatural, eternal life that you currently have. How well are you doing living in it? Some of you might say, a scale of one to 10, like I'm, I'm at a two. I'm at a two. Because I don't, I don't reckon this invisible world around me hardly ever. I live almost as if God is not really there. If you've come to Christ, the challenge is live robustly in that eternal life that you already have. Don't neglect it. One of the ways you live robustly in it is by inviting his presence into everything that you do 24-7 all the time. I have to have little mnemonic devices, little encouragements for me to do this. You've heard of some of my mnemonic devices, ETC, Every Thought Captive. If I'm going off the rails in my thought life, all right, Rod, ETC, Every Thought Captive. If things are chaotic in my life, sometimes I use the same ETC words to say, all right, embrace the chaos. Lord, I invite you into my chaos right now. But it's important to include disciplines in your life that allow you to live in his presence moment by moment. Everything is spiritual. Everything. Nothing is too trivial. I remember one time I was driving on Washington, D.C., and I was praying for a parking place. And the person that I was with was saying, that's ridiculous. Why would you pray for a parking place? You know, I mean, God's not interested in any of that stuff. Only the big stuff. And what this person was living is a bifurcated, separated life. Certain things are spiritual. Certain things are common. You don't merge them together. Everything is spiritual. And to live in the presence of God means that you begin living in that way. Third application, focus on the future. Focus on the future. Anticipate your eternal life to come. Um, here's how Paul put it. He said, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. But what that means is your life is protected. It's hidden in the sense that it is a valuable thing that is protected. It's hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him. What does it say? In glory. Now, this is an invitation to use your imagination. How many of you have thought, okay, what, what would it be like for me to encounter Jesus in my resurrection body? What would that be like? You know, I, I know for me what it would be like is I, I would be thinking, wow, how does this thing work? This is incredible. I wonder what I can do with this thing. I'm going to try a backflip right now. Jesus, hang on a second. Let me see if I can do a backflip. Oh, yes, this is great. What, what about my, my vertical jump? I've never been able to do 
any good basketball shots, right? I, I wonder if I could fly like Michael Jordan toward the net, you know? I mean, there's going to be some, some practical things about the resurrection body. If I think about this, I'm thinking, wow, I, I, I need to savor and treasure what God has in store for me. I know you do this. You spend money on a vacation, whole things plan on Expedia.com, all the reservations, all the c confirmation numbers. And the week before you go, you're thinking, we're going to Hawaii. It's going to be beautiful. Can't wait to go. You're just daydreaming about it the whole time. That's what Paul's saying, telling us to do. Anticipate. Anticipate what heaven is going to be like. Savor that. Savor that. Let's go back to the headline in the British Daily Paper. Headline claims, human beings are on the brink of achieving immortality by the year 2015. Plug and play new body parts. Upload your soul to the internet. Hope the internet doesn't go down. Um, you know, is that the kind of immortality you want? With somebody somewhere deciding, you know what? You've been sort of a bad guy. No eternal life for you. We don't want your soul uploaded into the cloud. You are prohibited from it. You've got the wrong, get the wrong views. No, not, not for you. Is that, is that what we really want? Is that, is that, is that a high-quality immortality? No. 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 The high-quality immortality is the eternal life that begins right now. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life and does not come into judgment, ain't going to Hades, but has passed from death into life. If you're here and you've done it, live in it. If you're here and you haven't done it, this would be a great time to transfer your trust from whatever you're trusting onto the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and then we're going to get our hearts ready for communion. Father in heaven, we bow before you amazed that we have a bridge into your presence, Jesus of Nazareth, who, because of his work on the cross, became our bridge into the very throne room of God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, by your sacrifice, became that bridge to the Father. We thank you, Holy Father, that we're able to come into your presence uh, with confidence, with joy, and we do that now, Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We love you and thank you, Lord, for this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in memory of me. He took the cup also, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take this in memory of me. If this is your first time at Grace, we take the bread, we dip it into the cup, we come forward, we kneel, uh, as a sign of, of humility, but you can come as you feel led to the communion table. If God has answered a prayer for you over the course of this past week and you want to celebrate that answered prayer, um, you can light a candle and bring it forward and, and do that. Let's worship the resurrected Jesus Christ.